Welcome to the Red Light Report, your number one source for all things red light therapy, where you will learn how to optimize your health, wellness, and longevity with the power of photobiomodulation. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Belkowski. Here we go, guys. Welcome back to the third and final solo-sode of this three-part series that we've been trekking through with the late, great Fritz Hallwich, the German ophthalmologist who wrote the book, The Influence of Ocular Light Perception on Metabolism in Man and in Animal. And if you've been partaking the past two weeks, I hope that you've been illuminated with some pretty pivotal, profound research. And I'll repeat it again that this research is back from the early to mid-1900s, and even late 1800s, but the information that's provided in this book is as relevant today as ever, and I think this third and final solo-sode in this three-part series is really going to wrap it up, especially the last two chapters, which are kind of short and brief, but they do kind of put some real-day, present-day perspective on light, in the modern day life. And again, this is copyrighted in 1970, but the information is as relevant today as ever. If you're just popping in for the first time, some of the contents that we covered in the previous two episodes, and again, I highly recommend that you listen to the previous two episodes. It doesn't necessarily have to be in any certain order, but might as well start from the beginning. So I'd listen to the first first episode, then the second episode, then this one, if you're just joining. FYI, what we've covered in the past, we've covered the energetic portion of the optic nerve. We've covered light and the pineal gland, light and growth, light and body temperature, light and kidney function, light and blood count, light and metabolic functions, and then light and thyroid functions. And so today, the third and final episode of this three-part series, we're going to cover light and thyroid function, light and sexual function, light and adrenal and pituitary functions, natural light and artificial fluorescent light, and then light pollution and the importance of light in metabolism in man and animal, the summary. And again, those last, you know, two to three, uh, not episodes, but chapters are pretty short as far as the pages go, but I'll be covering the majority of those chapters because what Fritz Hollowich writes, again, is very profound, very impactful, hopefully a lot of take-home points for you, the audience. And like I mentioned in the previous two episodes, I've read through this book multiple times, I've highlighted, I've underlined, I've made notes as to what I feel are the most important take-home points in this book. So I'm not reading the book cover to cover. I'm just taking, you know, certain paragraphs or certain pieces of research that I feel is relevant and uh, maybe even more importantly, easier to digest for the listener. Because you could you could read some of this part of the book and it gets pretty tough to listen to, let alone read. So what I'm doing for you guys is I'm making it as digestible as possible Again, take-home points, hopefully there's some applicability, maybe you'll make some changes with your own lighting environment, whether it's the the home, the office, or otherwise, getting out in the full-spectrum sunlight more often, maybe thinking twice about wearing sunglasses, because again, we need the light to reach the energetic portion of your eye, which sunglasses are essentially, whether it's polarized or not, but especially polarized, they're essentially a barricade blocking off 
light nutrition the need to make it to your energetic portion of your optic organ, the eye. So again, if you've listened to the previous two episodes, you know what I'm talking about, the visual portion versus the energetic portion of the eye. And what Fritz Hollowich is talking about in this book is making a stark contrast and a stark difference between the visual portion of the eye, which we all associate our eyes and eyeballs with, we see things, but what Fritz Hollowich and all the research he's compiled in this book is speaking towards the energetic portion of the eye and the domino effects, the trickle-down effects of what happens when you either do get proper light exposure, full-spectrum sunlight exposure, or if you're surrounded by darkness and or fake, white, bright, fluorescent lights. And there is a lot of downstream effects. And like I mentioned, all those chapters, I mean, from, from you know kidney function, blood count, immunity, and thyroid function. And we're going to learn a lot more today. So that was a long-winded way to say, welcome back. I hope you've been learning lots. And let's carry on with Fritz Hollowich, who, again, was born in 1907. And here we are in 2022, learning some pretty cool information from this guy. Without further ado, here we go with light and thyroid function. The close connection between the functions of the gonads and the thyroid in their effect on growth, reproduction, molting, and bird migration prompted experiments concerning the influence of varying light conditions on thyroid functions. And so again, just to step away for a second here, some of this research is going to be on animals, some of it will be on humans. We're going to learn quite a bit from animals today, namely birds, but also, you know, we're going to we're going to trickle or step into the realm of human research as well. So don't fret. We're not going to just talk about birds. Moving on, Hallwich in, in 1962, he studied 95 Peking ducks over a period of five years. The thyroid was also studied in order to trace the connections between gonad development and thyroid function. Among the various possible ways of obtaining information on thyroid activity, the authors chose to measure the size of the cell nucleus. So irradiation of the ocular regions of five-month-old drakes, which are male ducks, with a monochromatic light having a wavelength of 707 nanometers, which is red light, resulted in an increased average volume of the cell nuclei of the follicles, and the follicles having to do with the gonads. This was an expression of an increase in functional activity. So just to backtrack again, they irradiated the ocular regions, the eye of five-month-old male ducks with red light, which resulted in an increase in the average cell nuclei of the follicles in the gonads. And so here for the first time, a connection was established experimentally between the wavelength of the light entering the eye and the size of the nuclei found in the thyroid. The differences in the volumes of the follicle cell nuclei may, to a certain extent, be considered the expression of functional or metabolic changes in the thyroid. So pretty interesting, they irradiated the eyes of the drakes, they had an increase in the size of the cell nuclei of the follicles, and what they're saying is it's considered the expression of the functional or metabolic changes in the thyroid. So just like anything in the body or biology, it's very multifactorial as far as what happens. There's a lot of upstream, downstream effects. 
for anything, you know, diet, exercise, sleep, and light. So it's pretty interesting. Again, this speaks to the energetic portion of the eye. Again, the drakes were irradiated with light to the eye. And there was a change in their thymus that led to an increase in cell size in their gonads. Pretty crazy research from 1962. But let's carry on. Santo, in 1934, tested the effect of light on acetonitrile resistance in white mice. And remember from the last episode, they used acetonitrile when they were trying to find out how well the liver could detox with or without light. So here we are. Santo is testing the effect of light on acetonitrile resistance in white mice. And animals with a heightened thyroid activity that were kept in darkness required lower doses to cause death. Animals kept in light needed higher doses. So again, when you don't receive the light, when your body doesn't receive the light nutrition, it takes less of a dosage to cause a toxic or lethality occurrence. Whereas when you're exposed to normal amounts of light, it takes a higher amount of toxins to lead to lethality. That's what Santo was pointing out in 1934. In 1952, Millen irradiated the eyes of adult rabbits while shielding their bodies from the light. White light caused a fall in thyroid activity, while red light caused a rise. And for any type of office or hospital worker or anyone else who's surrounded by that bright white fluorescent light for hours and hours and hours on a daily basis, that is a huge piece of research. Yes, it's on rabbits, but still, I'll say it again, they shielded their bodies in the eyes were exposed to the light and white light caused a fall in thyroid activity while red light caused a rise. So take it for what it is. There's no doubt a lot of thyroid issues for office workers, weight gain, low metabolism, so on and so forth. And I think a lot more could be attributed to light than is given credit for. But moving on, Constant light, as well as constant darkness, affects thyroid activity in white mice. In constant light, there is a marked reduction in thyroid weight, radioactive iodine absorption, and thyrosyl reaction. On the other hand, in constant darkness, these increase. It appears that constant light results in reduced thyroid function in mice, while constant darkness results in increased function. And Dale, um, in 1972, exposed growing rabbits to varying periods of light and then measured the content of iodized amino acids in their thyroid and TSH, or thyroid-stimulating hormone, content of the pituitary. The group of rabbits in constant light showed the greatest increase in thyroid synthesis and TSH content. The reverse effect was found for the group in constant darkness. In the opinion of Dale, these results indicate clearly that constant light stimulates the hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis. Moving on, all of these observations point to light's thyrotropic effect, although the question of how this comes about remains open at present, in present being 1970. It is highly probable that light of long wavelengths play an important role here, as in the case of the gonads. And keep in mind, longer wavelengths would be red and infrared, whereas shorter wavelengths would be more so green, blue, 
purple, and then ultraviolet. In 1973 and 74, Hallwich was the first to report studies of thyroid function in the blind. He measured the free capacity of T3 as well as T4 as parameters for thyroid activity. A slight but significant thyroid hypofunction was found in the blind as compared to healthy control subjects. The same observation was made when comparing the condition of cataract patients before and after surgery. Serum thyroxine, which is T4, became normal when the entry of the light into the eye was restored. The T3 test remained unchanged. His co-worker, Dyke Hughes, in 1974, expanded the experiments to include the measurement of diurnal hormone curves. Amplitude is reduced in the blind, and mean values are lower than for the normal-sighted. Here, too, the comparison of individual curves for the blind and normal-sighted impressively demonstrates differences in the fluctuations in the diurnal hormone curves caused by the absence of light's stimulatory and regulatory effect as it enters the eye. And again, whenever I say diurnal curves or diurnal hormone curves, that's just another way of saying circadian rhythm. So what they're saying here is this research, especially with measuring T3, T4, clearly shows a staggering difference in the circadian rhythm of the thyroid function between blind because they can't receive the light in the energetic portion of their eye versus those with normal sight. Moving on to light and sexual function. And we'll start off with Bissonnet. Hope I'm not butchering that too much. In the early 1930s, he studied the sexual function in starlings and jays. I told you to be talking about birds. By exposing the birds to red light at night, he succeeded in shortening the period of winter dormancy of their gonads. Because of course in the winter, less light. The acceleration of gonadal development and spermatogenesis proceeded in proportion to the degree of increase in light intensity. Full spermatogenesis and activation of the epididymis, which usually does not occur until brooding time, now took place in December. Rinjan, in 1942, observed the effects of extended exposure to red or green light in the house sparrow. By means of red light, he induced an almost full maturation of the gonads in the female as well as male birds. Green light had practically no effect. And, you know, speaking of red light therapy, it does make sense that red light would have an effect. Of course, with what we're talking about here with light and its impact on the energetic portion of the eye. But red light as well, of course, works upon the mitochondria, which are in every single cell in your body except red blood cells, but the highest concentration is typically in the gonads or especially the egg cell for females. So for there to be a significant change with red light with these sparrows and no change in green light, that should make a lot of sense, that alone, let alone the fact that the red light through the energetic portion of the eye is probably more stimulating, leading to more energy production and just normalcy of cellular function. But regardless, pretty, pretty cool research from the early 1930s. But moving on here, Schildmacher in the late 1930s and early 1950s observed that the effective factor causing rutting in birds and mammals is in the seasonal variation in the length of daylight. The gonads mature 
In the course of changes in the intensity of light exposure, the male gonad reacted more quickly than the female. If the eyes are shielded from the effect of light, then such maturation does not take place. And another aside here, I get a lot of questions, especially from males, about how they should use red light therapy for increasing their testosterone production. And while there's many, many anecdotal proof that irradiating your gonads as a male may lead to increased testosterone production, there is still zero research showing that is the case. And so research like this, while yes, again, it's on it's on mammals and animals, it shows that if your eyes are not receiving the information and the nutrition from light, then you're not going to get any response. Again, if the eyes are shielded from the effect of light, then such maturation does not take place. So even if you're irradiating your gonads with red or near-infrared light, you may not be receiving the full benefits because, again, the energetic portion of your eye is not receiving that information, which goes to your pituitary gland, goes to your you know trickle-down effect to other pieces of physiology and tissue that would then lead to changes in your gonads. So it doesn't always have to be direct. That's another take-home point. And that's really the take-home point of this book is that your eyes are the window to your biology as far as light and the impact of light. But regardless, moving on, Benoit in 1955 demonstrated the effect of ocular light perception on the function of testicles and ovaries. Light had a marked influence on sexual maturation in young male Peking ducks. Sexual maturation occurred first in the group of birds raised under conditions of normal light. Constant darkness had a greater inhibitory effect than artificial constant light. This reaction, known as photosexual reflex, revealed that although light is not absolutely necessary for gonadal development, it does stimulate and synchronize gonadal activity. And then as early as 1938, Benoit postulated the existence of extra-retinal receptors for light. In 1964, he attempted to prove their existence in series of experiments that involved covering the eye in cranial regions, enucleation, again, taking the eyeball completely out, severing the optic pathway, and cranial trephination. According to his investigations, direct exposure of the retina to light is clearly most effective, by irradiating various portions of the optic system, including the hypothalamus via the orbit after enucleation, increased neurosecretion of the hypothalamus can be achieved, which in turn stimulates gonad growth via the pituitary. Wavelengths of the visible red produce the greatest stimulatory effect. So there we go again in the early to late 1930s, 1960s, we're seeing that red light is getting some interesting results. But that alone, we're also seeing that the energetic portion of the eye, once again, if it's stimulated, even after all of those surgical procedures, as long as the energetic portion is receiving light, it can send that information to the hypothalamus, which can then lead to downstream effects to the physiology and so on and so forth. So another feather in the cap for light in the energetic pathway and another feather in the cap for red light. But moving on. In the early 1960s, Hallwich continued Benoit's experiments in involving the activation of the photosexual reflex in Peking ducks, supplementing them by experiments with monochromatic light of equal intensity. 
they reached the following conclusions. Irradiation of the ocular region of the long wave monochromatic light strongly stimulates testicular development. And again, long wave is red light. And this was in comparison to the light of shorter wavelengths. Paralleling this, histological examination of the testicles reveals stimulation of spermatogenesis. Studies of the dependence of the sexual function on the light in the domestic chicken have concrete economic implications. This is information from the mid-1930s. Warren and Scott demonstrated that egg-laying is not dependent on the time of day. Additional artificial illumination during the winter months induces maximum laying. Regulation of the periods of light can, to a large extent, control the onset and amount of laying as well as the time of molting. Therefore, in order to obtain the best possible steady production, the poultry farmer keeps his laying hens indoors, exposing them to spring-like light with a high red content. With the right combination of illumination and temperature control, not only does laying activity begin earlier, but production is considerably higher too. As opposed to hens raised under normal conditions, 50 to 80 more eggs per hen per laying period can be produced. And again, that's with the artificial high red light. Those hens are laying 50 to 80 more eggs per hen per laying period. So that's what they're talking about with potential economic implications if you're if you're raising chickens, selling eggs and that kind of stuff. So there's other books that speak about how you can literally and I'll probably review these books in later episodes, but you can literally determine the sex of your dog by the lighting conditions. If you want to produce more male dogs, you do a certain type of lighting condition. If you want to do another, or if you want more female dogs, then you do a different type of light setting. Again, I don't know the specifics, but just speaking to the impact of light in this chicken research reminded me of that, where With the chickens, you give them high red content, they're going to pop out more eggs, provided they have the right temperature. With the dogs, you can determine male or female by certain lighting conditions. The impact of light, it's interesting. But moving on. In 1967, Fendler compared sexual development in newborn rats under conditions of constant illumination and constant darkness. The animals exposed to light showed an increase in the oxytocin content of the neuropituitary and of the hypothalamus as well as hypertrophy of the adrenal glands and testicles. Further reports on the role of light in activating the gonads in rats were presented by Baker in 1932, uh, where they studied newborn rats exposed to fluorescent lighting on varying spectral composition. They both found the multiple researchers, they both found that both male and female rats kept under normal white fluorescent lighting for 50 days displayed smaller gonads and a smaller spleen weight than those rats irradiated with artificial light similar to the sun's spectrum. That makes sense, because if you're getting white light, you're not getting the rest of the spectra provided by, by the sunlight, you know, red, green, blue, orange, yellow, violet, so on and so forth. If you're being irradiated with just white fluorescent light for almost two months straight, then yeah, I I would imagine you'd have smaller gonads, smaller spleen, and who knows what else was wrong, but 
poor rats that were exposed to 50 days of white light. So there you go. Get outside. I mean, you'll hear me throughout various podcasts. You know, I always, always promote full spectrum sunlight before red light therapy. Yes, when utilized correctly, red light therapy can help with certain conditions. But first and foremost, you need to be correcting the deficiency of your light environment with full spectrum sunlight because 95 to 99% of us don't get enough sunlight on a daily basis. And if you're under fluorescent lights on a daily basis, just like these rats, well, that's not looking good for your gonads or your spleen. So take that for what it's worth. But here we go. Moving onward with Reiter in 1969. He reported gonadal involution, which is shrinkage, gonadal involution in male and female golden hamsters within a few weeks following enucleation. Gonadal involution occurs under conditions of constant darkness. Spermatogenesis stops, tubular epithelial cells and accessory cell glands degenerate, and testosterone production is reduced. Fren and Liu in 1970 studied the influence of temperature and varying periods of light on the golden hamster's testicular development. 14 hours of daylight and an unchanging summer temperature did not cause any alteration in testicular weight. However, reducing the period of light to 8 hours led to a testicular weight loss of 90%. Now I'm going to read that last sentence one more time. 14 hours of daylight and an unchanging summer temperature did not cause any alteration in testicular weight. However, reducing the period of light to 8 hours led to a testicular weight loss of 90%. The amount of daylight wasn't even cut in half, but their testicular weight dropped by 90%. Crazy. Elliot, in 1972, exposed golden hamsters to a short day rhythm with unvarying six-hour periods of light, but with lengthening periods of darkness reaching a final total of 60 hours. The animal's diurnal activity, or circadian rhythm, was checked by measuring their use of a tread wheel. In cycles lasting one or two entire days, the short day led to testicular regression, whereas in cycles lasting one and a half or two and a half days, testicle weight was maintained. These results indicate that light exerts an influence on the gonads via an internal circadian clock. And so the circadian internal clock, really just speaking to our body, our physiology, mammals physiology, adapting to light, dark cycles. That's what we've been brought up on, if you will, evolutionarily speaking. And so thanks to the one and only Thomas Edison in 1879 with the invention of the light bulb, now our days have gotten longer. Now we can stay up later. Of course, now we've gone from the incandescent light bulb, which was much more physiologically friendly, to the fluorescent light, which is just bright white light typically, or blue light. It's wrecking our circadian rhythm. And we're seeing over the last really 100 plus years, the toll it's taking from obesity diabetes, various host of metabolic diseases. We can look at neurodegenerative diseases. It's wrecking our circadian rhythm, which we're talking about now. But the point being, your light environment is a lot more than just the light you live under day to day. It's how are you orchestrating your day to day life? Are you going to bed at a certain time? Hopefully it's early enough. Are you matching that with the seasonal variation? 
Are you staying up later in the summer, going to bed earlier in the in the winter, waking up later in the winter, waking up earlier in the summer? I mean, that's just the normal cascade or normal circadian of this sleep-wake cycle. And so the whole point of my diatribe here is that this is only one small piece of research from a while ago that shows that when your circadian rhythm is is thrown off, so so is the weight and the health of your gonads. But again, what else is going wrong when your circadian rhythm is thrown off? Another way of thinking of that is what type of light signals, what type of light nutrition are you sending your eyes through various hours of the day? When the sun goes down, are you still on the computer? Are you still looking at your cell phone? Are you watching TV? Are you in the metaverse with with your, you know, virtual reality goggles, you know, that's emitting who knows how much blue light? Because every time you're choosing to be around light versus darkness when the sun goes down, you're choosing to send certain signals to your brain that's telling your hypothalamus, even your thyroid and kidney and spleen and, and gut and all these different metabolic and hormonal functions that Instead of it being, you know, 10.30 p.m., since you're surrounded by blue light, well, you know, it's actually noon, according to your physiology. So when you try to throw your head on the pillow and go to bed, well, your cortisol levels are far too high because blue light leads to cortisol rise, which inhibits melatonin. So if you're inhibiting melatonin, you're going to have a tougher time falling asleep. If you have a tougher time falling asleep, you're going to be a lot more groggy when you wake up the next morning, but hey, at least there's caffeine and at least there's some other types of exogenous ways you can bolster the system to counter the grogginess. But that's the type of cycle that people get into. The burning the candle at both ends. You're going to bed late, you're waking up early, but you got your energy drink, your caffeine, and you know, you think that's gonna fix the situation. But not only is your light environment not right, now you're ingesting toxic chemicals that that's going to do who knows what for you in the long run. So all of that to say, there's a lot of downstream effects to having an inoptimal light environment. And again, a lot of that comes down to choice. You're choosing to have fluorescent lights in your house. You're choosing to stay up well past sundown to watch Netflix or otherwise. You're choosing to wake up and, you know, pound the coffee and energy drink to stimulate yourself. And then you're going to do the same thing probably in the middle of the afternoon when you hit the, uh, um, you know, the afternoon blues. And there's ways to counter this. That's why there's blue light blocking glasses. Because that does indeed help with that entire situation. Instead of blue light making it to your eyes, now it's being blocked. So now your cortisol levels aren't going to raise as much. Your melatonin is not going to be inhibited as much. So the blue light blockers are a huge tool that everyone needs to have and utilize on a daily basis. That's kind of a little diatribe on light environment, choice, and blue light blocking glasses. But let's move on with some more research. So this research is pretty darn interesting. Uh, This has to do with deer and their antlers and how the light affects the growth of antlers. A secondary sexual characteristic in deer and red deer, the antlers shows an annual increase based on a firm formula. Von Schumacher Marienfrid in 1939 was struck by the fact that the number of prize-winning deer antlers awarded at the Tyrolean Hunt Show varied from year to year. 
Antler growth in the roebuck takes place during the light deficient months of November to March. Von Schumacher Marienfrid studied the relevant factors of snow cover, temperature, and duration of sunshine, reaching the conclusion that the number of hours of sunlight is the most important factor in new growth of the antlers. Thus, a sunny winter was followed by a great number of prize-winning antlers. How crazy is that? Sunlight really playing the biggest role for the growth of antlers. Moving on, so here's some effects on humans. Jaffare, in 1970, tried to explain the relatively early occurrence of monarchy in countries with a warmer climate, such as India, as opposed to countries with a colder climate, as, for example, the United States, by pointing out the greater use of artificial lighting in the colder zone. This lengthening of periods of light might have a retarding effect. Radnoe, in 1961, reported the suspension of ovulation during the polar night. This podcast was brought to you by the Longev Revive Cream. If you haven't heard of this cream before, go back and listen to the podcast interview with David Horneck, one of the people that helped create this amazing cream. The cream is specifically developed to enhance red light therapy treatment sessions. And not only that, but improve vibrational healing from the frequencies of full spectrum sunlight. The Revive includes special ingredients such as photodynamic amino acids, which helps convert UV light to red light. It increases production of this thing called fibronectin, which is said to be the holy grail of anti-aging. And then there's astaxanthin, which has been shown in clinical studies to increase skin moisture, moisture retention, and elasticity. There's turmeric, which contains an antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and antimicrobial properties. There's copper peptides, which also has antioxidant, anti-inflammatory effects. C60 has high antioxidant power to prevent skin aging, 172 times more than vitamin C. And then there's also geranium rose, shungite, humic acids. And most of these ingredients are organic and they're all high, high quality. So if you want to check this cream out, go to longev.com, that's L-O-N-G-E-V-V.com, or you can also find it on biolite.shop, that's biolite.shop. Marx, in 1946, noted a decline in libido and potency in the polar winter. If you live in a northern latitude, such as Montana, there may be some negative downstream effects to, of course, not getting exposed to as much sunlight. Not only are you getting a lesser amount of sunlight because of the way the earth tilts, you're probably going to have more overcast weather where you're literally not getting as much light exposure. And so there are some effects both from a male and female perspective. Excluding all factors, with the exception of the absence of photostimulus, the authors noted a marked premature monarchy in the full-term blind girls too. McGee, in 1970, reached similar findings for girls blind at birth. Monarchy occurred earlier both in those subjects who were totally blind and in those who retained a slight degree of light perception than in those who could still perceive shadows. These data show very clearly that physiologically normal sexual development in humans is a process functionally dependent on light perception via the eye, just as it is in other mammals. More detailed studies by von Schumann in 1973 seem to verify light's effect on the female sexual cycle. Less than 10% out of 30 women who became blind early in life had regular menstruation. 
the rate for women with cycle fluctuations of more than 60 days was nine times higher than for normal sighted control persons. Becoming blind during the age of sexual maturity led to irregularities and amenorrheal periods lasting for months, although periods had previously been regular. Hypermenorrhea and leukorrhea almost always occurred. Naus, in 1950, found that there is an increase in psychoses related to the menstrual cycle during light-deficient months as a result of inadequate supply of light to the pituitary. He found that European women often experience temporary sterility in the tropics as a result of overly intense effective light. These observations point to a functional relationship between the eye and pituitary. Reinberg, in 1974, examined a young woman who had spent almost three months in a cave with only the dim light of a miner's lamp. She measured her temperature daily for one year before and one year after this experience. Previously, she had lived a 24-hour day and had a menstrual cycle of 29 days. With the absence of daylight during her stay in the cave, her day was lengthened to 24.6 hours and her menstrual cycle shortened to 25.7 days. After the end of her confinement to darkness, it took approximately one year until her cycle returned to 29 days. Kaiser and Halberg in 1962 reported that in 60% of women, labor begins in the night, reaching a high point around 3 a.m. Most stillbirths or cases in which infants died shortly after birth occurred in the late afternoon. These findings imply that a circadian phase plays an extremely important role in a healthy pregnancy. And moving on here, perhaps the effect of light on the neuroendocrine system can also explain some of the stereotype views concerning temperament and climate. For example, the melancholy Danes or the high-spirited Italians. Perhaps it is not only the cold, but also the deficiency of sunlight that depresses the spirits of people in high latitudes. The beginning of labor also seems to be subject to the influence of light. Thus, Hoseman in 1946 found that in 10,000 births, labor began around midnight in a majority of cases. Schlegel and co-workers in 1966 observed 1,800 healthy women between the ages of 18 and 30 who had experienced a normal pregnancy. Delivery proceeded without medication or surgery. The researchers found that labor showed a marked and quite regular diurnal fluctuation with a maximum of cases occurring at 2 a.m. and a minimum at noon. Women giving birth for the first time displayed this rhythm more clearly than those who had given birth before. So that's pretty interesting. I didn't really know that until I read this book that most births occur around 2 a.m. And most don't occur <laughs> around noon. And so I just know I was born at 7.15 p.m. So even I, I was seven hours early to that 2 a.m. time spot for whatever that's worth. But if you know your birth time, that'd be kind of interesting to compare how close were you to 2 a.m. and or how close were you to noon? Because in theory, you know, according to this research, you'd want to be closer to 2 a.m. and as far away from noon as possible. But moving on, Hallwich in the late 1960s, early 1970s, investigated the sex hormones of the anterior lobe of the pituitary. 
So gonadotropic excretion in the urine can be regarded as one of the parameters for gonadotropic activity of the pituitary's anterior lobe. Studies of this were made on the one hand in the blind as compared with the normal sighted, and on the other hand in patients who had been practically blind for months as a result of cataracts in both eyes and who then regained their sight after successful surgery. By examining the same patient under unchanging conditions of the environment and diet, the content of the luteinizing hormone in the serum or urine could be measured, first pre-surgically in the practically blind state and then post-surgically with restored sight. The authors demonstrated that in the case of intact ocular photoreception, light stimulates gonadotropin increase in the humans via the energetic portion of the visual pathway. So here again, Hallwich is proving emphatically that the energetic portion of the visual pathway is playing a role, specifically when someone who has previously not received that information with bilateral cataracts, they had surgery, with the removal of those cataracts, now light and the nutrition and information from light could be received by the energetic portion of the pathway, and then things normalize purely because of that. Moving on here, the stimulatory effect of light on testosterone could also be demonstrated. When light's entry to the eye was blocked, in the case of the blind, testosterone excretion in the urine was significantly lower than in the normal sighted. And with that, that wraps up the light and sexual function chapter of the book. No surprise here, you know, light plays a pivotal role, or lack of light plays a pivotal role on our sexual organs. You know, whether it's testosterone, whether it's menarche, whether it's the menstruation process, you know, for females, the absence of light or proper amount of light really determines all of those different variables. The sexual function in, in humans and mammals is no stranger to the effect of light. But moving on, we're going to look at light and adrenal and pituitary functions now. We will start with Hallwich, believe it or not. Extensive studies by Hallwich in the early 1970s of cataract patients before and after removal of the cataracts showed a significant influence of light perception on cortisol secretion and rhythm. They found that patients blind because of cataracts showed a lowering of the matutinal peak and a lower curve pattern than the normal sighted. Excretion of cortisol metabolites in the urine was significantly lowered. After surgery, with the return of normal light perception, the amplitudes of the peaks in the serum as well as total excretion rose to the level of normal sighted. In addition, Hallwich found a general reduction and flattening of the curves for the level of plasma cortisol in the blind in contrast to the pronounced matutinal rise in the normal sighted because of the entry of light in morning hours. So again, matutinal having to do with morning. Hallwich concluded from this that ocular perception of light stimulates the pituitary adrenal cortex function. This explains the fact that basal secretion as well as excretory maxima for the hormones of the adrenal cortex are reduced in the blind. And then moving on to catecholamines, literal research has been done on the effect of light on the synthesis, release, and metabolism of catecholamines. Although it is known that catecholamines, which is noradrenaline, dopamine, adrenaline, they fulfill important functions in the neural and endocrine terms. The only study in this connection was done by 
Volsile in 1960, who observed a total lack of diurnal fluctuations of noradrenaline in the blind. And then Hallwich in 1969 studied the diurnal fluctuations of catecholamines as well as their catabolite vanillin mandelic acid, or VMA, in the urine of the blind, the normal-sided, and the normal-sided after being kept in darkness, and cataract patients before and after surgery. The results showed that there are significant differences in catecholamine metabolism in the normal-sided and in patients unable to perceive light. And then rolling right along with pituitary hormones, given the fact that the entry of light into the eye via the energetic portion of the visual pathway induces the hypothalamus and the pituitary, it follows that practically all secondary hormonal glands, for example, the adrenal cortex, thyroids, gonads, and possibly the pineal as well, are influenced in a stimulatory and regulatory manner. If these photoimpulses are absent, as in the case with blind people, the question arises whether abnormalities in the secretion of the pituitary hormones ensue. In addition to existing biological methods, radioimmunological means have been developed recently which make it possible to measure even the slightest hormonal concentrations. Diurnally rhythmic fluctuations have been found for numerous pituitary hormones, for example, ACTH, gonadotropins, HGH, and TSH. Studies of the growth hormone of the anterior lobe of the pituitary were conducted with 60 blind persons as compared to 25 with normal sight and with 20 cataract patients before and after surgery. For the blind, an average value of 1.16 out of 100 milliliters was found in comparison with 4.08 in 100 milliliters for those with sight. Correspondingly, the values for cataract patients before surgery were 1.3 per 100 milliliters, after surgery, they were 2.52 per 100 milliliters, so almost twice as much. The individual daily curves were also found to be different in the blind. Amplitude was lowered and diurnal average values were reduced, so they had a neuroendocrine deficit. Holding a central position in light stimulation via the eye, hypothalamus, pituitary, secondary hormonal gland system, that's a mouthful, ACTH also shows significant deviations when photostimulation via the eye is absent. Although less pronounced, diurnal fluctuations in the blind were similar to the findings for HGH. The ACTH content of the blood was lowered. Similar differences were also found for gonadotropin and TSH. So again, our, our pituitary hormones, our adrenal glands, they're no stranger to being positively or negatively affected by light. But moving on to our last couple chapters here, this one is natural sunlight and artificial fluorescent light. In the process of evolution, all creatures adapted to the natural alternation between daylight and darkness. Accordingly, it can be demonstrated that the systems of all organisms from protozoa to man are affected by the day-night sequence. Fluctuations occurring in the course of the day can deviate more than 100% from the diurnal mean value. This natural daily rhythm was not interrupted until 1879 when Edison's invention of the incandescent lamp led to a completely new and different form of illumination. Subsequent research concentrated on producing the brightest light at the lowest cost without raising the question of whether this different kind of light, and we're talking fluorescent here, different kind of light might have a harmful effect on the human organism. Medical considerations were ignored as the quote-unquote similarity to daylight 
of artificial light lighting was pointed out. Yet, if natural daylight is compared to artificial light, important differences can be demonstrated regarding the intensity of illumination and the spectral composition and monotony of artificial light. So let's move on to intensity as it relates to light. It is well known that a great discrepancy exists between the intensity of natural light outdoors and artificial light indoors, whereas up to 100,000 lux can be measured outdoors on bright summer days, a level of lighting intensity in an indoor work area exceeding 2,000 to 3,000 lux is unlikely. A study by Range in 1971 serves as an example of this. A work area was chosen outdoors where the incidence of light would not be affected by any obstruction. A test subject was seated at a desk facing north, i.e. in a direction that provided a maximum of uniform brightness. Test sheets with typewritten text and a computer punch card were placed in front of the volunteers. Both were judged successively according to their brightness. The test was given at different times of day, i.e. under different conditions of light intensity. 50% of the test subjects were found the range from 2800 to 4250 lux to be an acceptable level of illumination. The results show that the eye and the human organism adapted to these high levels of intense daylight out of doors without their being felt as noticeably disturbing. However, these same intensities in the form of artificial light would be found unacceptable to an extreme degree. The unpleasant effect of high-intensity artificial light comes from the stressful reaction elicited by increased metabolic activity. It must be emphasized here that the numerous effects of light on the human and animal organism that have been cited do not only produce a beneficial quote-unquote natural stimulation of the pituitary gland and the adrenal cortex, if the stimulus becomes too strong, they bring about an unspecific stress reaction. Ever since Selye conducted his experiments, it has been known that stress of any kind leads to a secretion of adrenal cortex, and that would be cortisol, and that a buildup of the stress factors or prolonged stress can result in the appearance of abnormalities and pathological changes in the organism. Again, when exposed to too high amounts of artificial light, we're going to have a buildup of stress factors and prolonged stress physiologically that's going to lead to, as it says here, pathological changes in the organism. Hallwich, in the late 1960s, studied eosinopenia, which is white blood cells, in human blood after exposure to varying intensities of artificial light. The results indicate that as the intensity of the light increases, the eosinopenic effect occurs earlier and more markedly as a result of an increased secretion of cortisol from the adrenal cortex. And then similar findings were reported in the late 1960s. Even though the threshold for physiological stimulation by means of artificial light and for pathological stress effective light varies from person to person, still we should keep in mind that an increase in the intensity of light to 2,000 to 3,000 lux sometimes called for by architects and lighting experts, can trigger a stress reaction in a relatively large number of people. In combination with our stress-laden surroundings, this can lead to pathological disturbances in the organism due to so-called light pollution. So even in the late 1960s, early 1970s, they already understood light pollution by the metrics of how bright the fluorescent lights were. They already knew it was doing a detriment to humans. And then moving on to spectral differences. If the spectral composition of natural light 
is compared to that of artificial light, it is evident that sunlight evinces a continuous slight rise in the progression of high-frequency wavelengths of light, reaching a maximum in the yellow to green area, then declining slightly until the infrared area. On the other hand, the artificial light of fluorescent lamps, which is of special interest because of its widespread use in interior lighting, does not show any continuity in the spectral distribution curve and is moreover broken up by the very intense mercury vapor lines at 406 nanometers, 436 nanometers, 546 nanometers, and 578 nanometers. And if you look at the picture that goes along with this, like they're showing, natural light has a beautiful, relatively smooth curve up, and then it plateaus, and then it goes downward. Whereas with the fluorescent lighting, it's very fractionated. It goes up and all the way down, up and all the way down, up and all the way down with those mercury vapor lines. So very clearly not a normal, healthy type of light compared to the nice, smooth lines of full-spectrum sunlight. But carrying on here. The disturbance in the spectral distribution curve in the case of fluorescent lamps is in part so pronounced that two or more maxima in varying wavelength areas appear. This difference in the spectral composition of artificial light causes a differing reaction in the organism, as Hallwich in 1962 were able to prove by means of animal experiments. They irradiated five-month-old drakes, again, male ducks, with monochromatic light of differing wavelengths for a period of 21 days. The following results were obtained. Orange light enlarged the testicles sixfold and red light 16-fold when the reproductive cells were fully mature. Shortwave blue light, however, had no effect. Thus, the stimulatory effect of light on the growth and maturation of the testicles is a function of specific wavelengths in the visible spectrum. It is significant in this regard that the development of the testicles is influenced by those wavelengths at a low frequency end of the spectrum, low frequency being long wavelength such as red light, an area of visible light which plays a subordinate role in the visual process. I'll read that last sentence again so I don't interrupt it. It is significant in this regard that the development of the testicles is influenced by those wavelengths at the low frequency end of the spectrum, an area of the visible light which plays a subordinate role in the visual process. Moving on to the monotony of artificial lighting. Whereas natural daylight is subject to continuous fluctuations in brightness and color because of cloud formation, sunrise, and twilight, artificial light evinces a monotony in brightness and color lasting from the moment the light is turned on until it is turned off. But we know from experience that for the biological regulatory mechanism to work properly, continuous variations in the amounts of stimulation are necessary to sustain its power to function. The adverse condition of permanent monotony carries with it the danger that this regulatory mechanism may be restricted in its role of governing the normal function of the organism, thereby inducing pathological disturbances. Until the present, Problems with the artificial lighting have been considered to be primarily technical, but it is now time to direct attention to the medical aspects. Man has adapted completely to natural daylight. I'll say that again. Man has adapted completely to natural daylight. Artificial light, which differs to a high degree from sunlight in its composition, should be regarded only as supplementary and not as a replacement of equal value. Above all, in the case of children who attend schools without windows, we must be prepared for the eventual appearance of pathological consequences. And I'll say it again, I've said it multiple times, 
This book was written in the 1970s, and Fritz Hallwich is talking about that type of stuff. And here we are today, I don't, I don't think much has changed as far as lighting in schools, lighting in the working environments, or even lighting in the homes. So it's still an ongoing issue today. And then we have just two more chapters here, maybe two of the bigger chapters in the entire book. So let's finish with a bang here, and we'll start with light pollution. Edison's invention of the carbon filament lamp in the year 1879 represented the beginning of a new era that replaced the pine torch and wax candle. Work hours could be extended past twilight and into the night. Work performance and work capacity rose to a degree unheard of previously. Since that time, lighting experts have sought to heighten the intensity of lamps and decrease their heat emission, which results in cutting costs at the same time. So keep in mind the incandescent produced more heat, but it produced much more red and near-infrared light, whereas the fluorescent lights of today are bright white, blue light, but produce much less heat, thus are considered more efficient, more cost-efficient, more energy-efficient, but of course, there's a tax to be paid with, with our human biology and our health. Today, we live in the era of fluorescent lamps that can uniformly light every last corner of large and even extremely large spaces. The fluorescent lamps are installed as, quote-unquote, bands of light in the ceiling. They not only cast their light directly into the room, but also onto the usually bright white ceiling and walls which reflect it back indirectly into the room. If the building is without windows, or if daylight is excluded or seasonally lacking, then a thoroughly illuminated shadowless space is created, which has aptly been termed a light cage. So if you're in an office building with minimal daylight, you're in a light cage. Just think about that. Moving on here. As if it were not a fact that light involves the whole body, these bands of light in bright ceilings are found not only in public buildings, conference rooms, banks, offices, and factories, but in schools also. Not only is the adult exposed to this unnatural artificial flood of light, but the growing child is as well. In addition, a minimum lighting intensity from 1000 to 1200 lux is considered necessary in the child's workspace also. In the winter months, the child on school days as well as the worker in an office, store, or factory perceives artificial light not just during working hours, but also on the public transportation used to get to and from school or work. During this time, all functions of the human organism are exposed to an artificial photostimulus via the eye, which is further heightened when the intense photostimulus of the television screen is added to it. And nowadays, of course, the cell phone tablet screens... The most familiar result of this constant stimulus of the autonomic, i.e. the unconscious nervous system, is the increasing insomnia of the city dweller who is deprived of relaxation in the evening with the presently used light sources. Wortman, in the course of his investigations on the pineal organ with Axelrod, devoted special attention to the influence of light's entry into the eye on the organism. In 1969, he wrote... For the past few generations, humans have spent much of their lives under artificial light sources, which often were designed to satisfy cosmetic consideration and whose spectra bear little similarity to the natural sunlight under which life on Earth evolved. There are essentially no data to help us evaluate the biologic consequences of living under incandescent bulbs or standard cool white fluorescent lights. If, in fact, excess exposure to artificial light sources or inadequate exposure to natural light has harmful biological effects, 
we may find ourselves in a generation or two worrying about light pollution. And here we are, um, a generation or two or three later, and heck yeah, we're worried about light pollution, but we just don't realize it. And that quote spoke about it beautifully, and really this chapter has where we go to work, we go to school, we come home, and we're just constantly surrounded by artificial light or light pollution, what's now coined malillumination, because now we know the, the detriment it does to our biology. Light not only has the optic effect of improving vision, via the energetic portion of the optic pathway, it also affects the entire organism, as previous chapters have discussed. Intense photostimulus causes increased accretion of ACTH and cortisol, and as a result, work performance increases during the first hours of exposure, only to decline sharply thereafter. In this connection, Hallwich in 1977 studied the effects of intense artificial illumination on young voluntary subjects who were students. The results were that during those two weeks of exposure to an intensity of 3,500 lux with a fluorescent lamp of cool white light, there was a continual rise of ACTH and cortisol excretion which reached stress levels. After a subsequent two-week return to natural daylight, the stress hormones ACTH and cortisol returned to normal levels. These results also show that natural light, the forgotten parameter, is a basic element of vital processes. The extraterrestrial light emitted by sun acts as an energetic transmitter via the energetic portion of the optic pathway for all living things. Entering the eye it stimulates the hormonal glands and metabolic processes to act together harmoniously. In order to avoid light pollution, we should therefore utilize daylight as long as the season permits, both in schools and other places of work. If artificial illumination is necessary, it should be subject to variation by a stage selector switch and should not exceed an average value of 500 lux for the school and 700 lux for the average place of work. Artificial sources of light should approach the spectral range of natural light as closely as possible. There are two ways to reach this. First, as miners in 1977 and Hallwich in 1978 stated, by a combined form of light, fluorescent tubes and incandescent lamps, and second, as Wortman in 1975 proposed, by a broad-spectrum fluorescent lamp with a tube simulating sunlight in the visible and ultraviolet ranges. Recently, we tested this tube and compared it under equal conditions with a standard cool white fluorescent lamp, under the same stress-like intensity of the 3500 lux. With the broad-spectrum tube, we got a significantly less pronounced reaction of the stress hormones of ACTH and cortisol than we found with the one of the widely used standard cool white lamps. In other words, from the standpoint of health, this broad-spectrum tube is much better tolerated regarding the endocrine response of the human body than the standard cool white one. And that's the end of the chapter, but... That chapter could be read again and again and again because it kind of gives a quick history and really the situation we're dealing with present day, you know, the the invention of electricity and, and the light bulb and what that has allowed us to do in, in a lot of good ways. But again, the pendulum has swung so far to one side, meaning we've used it, we've abused it, and finally the dots are being connected that there is a price that's being paid by being overexposed to this artificial fake light, whether it's during the day, but especially during the night. So 
Keep in mind with your light environment, minimize the light pollution, minimize your malillumination, and that can be done by changing the type of bulbs you're using in your house, in the office, kids at school. I know kids can't really do that, but hopefully schools would do that at some point, you would think. Allow more natural light into your workplace. Allow more natural light into your house. When you can get outside, get outside. Get that full spectrum sunlight exposure as consistently and as often as possible with a caveat that you don't want to get sunburns. But needless to say, through evolution, we were raised upon full spectrum sunlight. And that brings us, ladies and gentlemen, to the final chapter of this book, The Importance of Light in Metabolism in Man and Animal, The Summary. So here we go. When we speak of the eye, we generally think of its function as a camera whose sole task is to transmit to man the form, color, and brightness of the environment. The second and equally important function of the eye as a receptor for extra-visual photostimuli is still generally unknown even today. The eye uses light not only as a medium of vision, light entering the eye regulates and stimulates numerous autonomic metabolic hormonal processes such as sugar balance, water balance, blood count, sexual function, and much, much more, as has been discussed in detail in previous chapters. With the supplemental aid of comparative studies before and after surgery of patients who went temporarily blind from acquired opacities of their lenses of both eyes, it was possible to prove the effect of light entering the eye in an objective, scientific manner by means of metabolic and radioimmunological hormone experiments. Removing the opaque lens restores light's entry into the eye and returns two functions to patients who are virtually blind before the operation. They regain their sight, and their autonomic centers, the hypothalamus pituitary pineal, are stimulated by extra-visual photostimuli. As a result, these individuals experience a revitalization which is also clearly expressed in their faces. Their happiness at their regained vision doubtless plays a role here too, but happy impressions or experiences have only a temporary effect on the psyche as well as on the metabolism and endocrine glands. Thus, the permanent post-operative improvement in metabolic condition can be attributed exclusively to the regained extra-visual photostimuli. Our experiments demonstrate without a doubt that from the earliest beginnings, light from the sun has not only made the human individual's vision possible, but has also stimulated and vitalized his metabolic and hormonal balance. If light's entry into the eye is blocked, example by blindness, then all metabolic and hormonal processes occur at a lower than normal level. There is an abnormal adaptation to increased stresses as well as to the day-night rhythm. The time of the onset of blindness plays a role in determining the extent of these changes. Becoming blind as a child causes much stronger side effects than if one becomes blind as an adult. Further, it should be noted that the totally blind person, as a result of lack of visual stimuli, exhibits stronger side effects than the blind who still perceive light or possess slight vestigial vision. In contrast to the blind person, the individual with intact vision thus possesses an additional source of energy as a result of light's entry into the eye. For this reason, the working hypothetical designation energetic portion, in contrast to visual portion, was chosen by the author in 1948 for that part of the optic pathway that perceives the extra-visual photostimuli and conducts them 
to the autonomic centers in the brain, such as the hypothalamus pituitary pineal. This energetic effect of light applies to the natural as well as artificial variety. Whereas before Edison's invention, the eye was exposed for millennia only to natural light, for nearly 100 years now, natural light has been increasingly supplemented or even replaced by artificial light. In contrast to natural light, artificial light has an unnatural and hence unphysiological stimulatory effect. The greater the intensity of the light involved, the greater this effect. This is true in special measure for windowless working areas whose only source of light is fluorescent lamps in the form of bands of light. Unnecessarily high intensity of artificial light leads to stress-like changes of metabolic and endocrine parameters traceable in the blood chemistry, as we were able to demonstrate in our experiments. In addition to this, Adults who work in a so-called light cage and whose autonomic nervous system is unstable by nature may undergo, undergo an increase in their symptoms. The situation is completely different for the growing child who experiences all surrounding stimuli with particular intensity. For this reason, school should remain flexible, utilizing natural light as long and as often as possible, even if pedagogical aims should suffer a bit as a result, for example, by sometimes holding classes outdoors. If artificial light is necessary in the darker months, the inadequate natural illumination should be supplemented as needed during the day with stage selector switches and be fully replaced only in the evening. As demonstrated in Chapter 5, which was light and growth, the child is retarded in growth if light's entry into the eye is lacking. The effect of supplemental artificial light may in turn contribute, along with other factors such as higher protein intake, to acceleration in growth, which has been observed in recent decades in all northern countries. Over and above this, the child's autonomic nervous system suffers to a heightened degree from the extra visual stimulus of artificial light of market spectral deficiency, including that from the television screen, as attentive observers believe can be demonstrated. Alright guys, drumroll please, because here is the conclusion. It must be stated that man is definitely a dual being, a creature of culture as well as of nature. In conflict with the requirements and desires associated with his cultural self are his natural needs which call for activity, such as regular exercise outdoors, and good living habits, such as sufficient sleep before midnight. <laughs> before midnight, that's funny. Since these form the basis for health of his organism. Although human genius succeeded in imitating the light emitted by that of the sun, the imitation necessary as it is for our civilization, is not a satisfactory substitute as far as our organism is concerned. Artificial sources of light are so-called pseudo-suns of culture. Natural light, involving the whole body, is a vital element like water and air. As such, it should accompany the human individual for as many hours of the day as the course of the seasons permits. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we come to a conclusion and end of Fritz Hollowich's book, The Influence of Ocular Light Perception of Metabolism in Man and in Animal. I just appreciate every single one of you <laughs> joining me on this, on this ride, going through some really interesting research, looking at all various aspects of our health and physiology, namely how light through our eye influences it all. Um, I'd love to hear your feedback, whether it's you know through email, 
direct message through Instagram, even, you know, throw out a five-star review and let me know your thoughts about what you liked or disliked about this three-part solo soap series, because I'd like to know if I should do more of these in the future, because I have a, a room full of books that, you know, I'd be happy to go over and share and review and, you know, just pick out and synthesize the information and, you know, regurgitate it to you guys, because, of course, that's the whole point of this podcast, The Red Light Report. And of course, the focus is on red light and red light therapy, but I thought this was a fantastic book, again, to kind of build a solid foundation on as far as building some respect for light and its impact and its consequences on our health and wellness. Thanks for joining me for this three-part series. We'll get back on the interview train next week. So stay posted for my interview with Dr. Mary Pardee next week. But uh, for all of you, appreciate you taking the time to listen to this podcast, to listen to this episode, share it with your friends, your family, especially this three-part series if you found it interesting because everyone needs to know the impact of light and how it affects their health. Because with that being said, if you know what's wrong, if you know that your lighting environment is toxic and deficient in nutrients, then simply fixing it. And again, this is a free fix for your health and wellness. Get outside, get some sunlight, get out of your house or office that's riddled with fluorescent lights. Ask your boss or if you're in your own house, change from fluorescent to incandescent lights or change to a light that has produces more red and infrared and more heat. Is it going to cost more? Yeah, but really not that much compared to what it's going to be worth for your health long term. So Again, guys, appreciate it. Take care, stay healthy, get some red light, get some full spectrum sunlight, and be well. Thank you for listening to the Red Light Report. If you like what you heard today, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes and other podcast platforms to help spread the word so other people can learn about the many health, wellness, and longevity benefits of red light therapy. If you're looking for more educational content, check out our Instagram page at biolight.shop and our YouTube channel, Biolite. I'm Dr. Mike Belkowski, and I'll see you on the next episode.